Welcome in, folks. It is here. The Pop 6 has arrived, courtesy of 104.5 The Zone, 104.5thezone.com. Soon coming to a podcast catcher near you. Could be there by the time you hear this. Should not take very long. My name is Jason Martin. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Big Six blog here at 104.5 The Zone. Formerly the lead pop culture writer and a staff contributor for Outkick the Coverage. Still, of course, guest host on that fine radio program from time to time for my good buddy Clay Travis. And, well, I talk about sports here on the Big Six. And here on the Pop Six, we're going to talk pop culture. And I want to thank all of those out there who suggested and asked and requested for this podcast to live again in a new form, that you enjoyed the first run that uh, you know, kind of came to a close around the holiday of last year. The last episode that I actually did was, well, the last like pure episode I did was about Home Alone. And then I kind of talked about changes within my life in terms of my faith and uh, how that had sort of changed some of my pop culture viewing. And that's something that we'll have to talk about here on the Pop 6 because there's a lot of content that I used to watch and trade in and talk about that I simply don't anymore for varying reasons. But there's still going to be a lot that I do consume. And there will be times where I see whether or not you know something is, is okay. But there are a lot of places that you can get certain reviews of certain things. I don't want to spend my time watching a lot of things that bring me down. I like the uplifting stuff. I like the stuff that I can talk about that I've loved. And that's what I'm going to do on this show, both about film and television. We'll talk a little bit of games from time to time on here. We'll take, we'll definitely talk some music. So many live experiences here in the music city to where I can give you reviews when I go to attend these things and certainly albums and all of that. So everything's going to be on deck. The one thing we don't generally do, I'm not going to be talking reality shows. You're not going to get the bachelor here. You're not going to get me talking about the Kardashians here or things like that. It's just not stuff I care about. And there are so many places that do nothing but talk about that stuff. There's an entire television network, basically two sort of devoted to nothing but that. So we're not going to do that here. But we are going to talk in depth about television. And we're going to talk in depth about movies. And we're going to talk about the things that are happening, the stories, things that I see. One of the things that I guess if you want to say one of my bigger strengths is that I like to look at shows and look at films and try to find larger themes that occur in multiple instances throughout a certain property, a certain piece of pop culture that can apply to life. Or that, if short of life, can certainly apply to all the characters. As opposed to you're just watching one scene with you know, Saul Goodman and Kim Wexler on Better Call Saul, but that very same emotion, that same theme is also playing out with Mike Trout and Gustavo Fring, and workers for the Super Lab, for example. Usually, you can find those things. And God has blessed me, at least, with the ability to to kind of see through just what's being said on screen and try to find other things. And sometimes I reach, these are just analysis pieces, these are just opinions, not worth any more than yours. I appreciate so much and will never take for granted the minutes, the moments, the seconds, or the eyeballs, or the years that you grant me here on this podcast, on the blog, on the Big Six, anything that I do, if you support me in any way, uh, you're the only reason why I have a shot to do this in the first place. I was a guy that I don't, you know, people ask me, they say, how exactly did you start writing about pop culture? How did that become a thing? That's a really good question. And the only answer that I have for you is I was gifted with the ability to do it, not 
meaning that I'm great at it or anything to that, but just I was given the ability in terms of I was in the right place at the right time. I went up to Clay and I said, hey, I, you know, you like TV. I've heard you talking about it on 3HL. I have written some stuff in the past, not really about TV, but I really, you know, think I might be good at this. And he gave me a shot and it worked out. And from there, I was able to say, hey, I work for this and go to HBO and go to Netflix and go to Hulu and go to Amazon and go to AMC and go to FX, go to NBC Universal, go to ABC, go to ESPN, and of course, go to the movie studios and the various distribution companies and say, look, this is what I'm doing. Uh, I'm writing long form pieces. I'm writing analysis. I'm probably going to be doing a podcast at some point. Just wanted to see. I wanted to see if anybody would take me seriously. Or if I was just going to have to watch everything when it came out, just like anyone else. And to my surprise, they took me seriously. And so now I'm given screeners and I'm sent for your consideration stuff for the Academy Awards. Now that I'm a part of the Music City Film Critics Association, we just finished our first year, just put out our nominations and our awards for our films of the year. And Clint Redwine and Michael Compton and all the guys that are affiliated with that did a great job, and Nashville is being taken real seriously as a market when it comes to pop culture criticism. Those awards actually got some recognition. Some of the people that won cared, and that's tough to do in a first year of, you know, because you just grab a bunch of people that are doing various things, writing for various websites. Maybe a few of them do a TV appearance here and there, but you never know because everybody's got a podcast. This pop culture podcast, I have no idea how many of you are actually going to find this thing because it's just a gigantic sea of content a lot of it is very good hopefully mine will stack up to it but it's tough to get an audience because there is so much stuff because just like everyone is a journalist now and I put that in air quotes if you've got a phone you can record something whether it's yourself and then call yourself a titans expert or events that are happening whatever it might be everyone now has their own camera crew in their hand And so that makes it tough. And now everybody can do a podcast. I'm not special, but I am blessed. And I want to make sure that that comes across week after week on this show, that all glory to God, all glory to Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. I would have nothing without him. I wouldn't be able to talk without him. I wouldn't have all the wonderful things that he has brought into my life over the past few years as I finally awakened to it. I was someone that was baptized when I was a teenager And then I lived for the next almost 20 years as if, yeah, I know he's out there, but I'll get around to it. And when that changed about a year and a half ago, my life changed with it. And people have asked and asked for content and they've asked me to talk about my health changes and all of these various things. And what I continue to say whenever they ask me for a short version of those stories is all glory to God. Because had I planned to wake up one day and just start losing weight and change my diet, I would have failed. I might have succeeded for a time, and I could still fail. But there was a moment relatively early on during that process where I recognized he's given me a blank slate. He has said, you know what, you have eaten yourself to death throughout your life. But that blood work's going to come back good for you today, and it did. 
And when you thought, man, just tell me I lost a pound. And the doctor walks in, gives you a high five and says, you've lost 31 in six weeks. I'm telling you, I got this. Not me. He's telling me, I've got this, Jason. I got this. And once I recognized that was a blessing, it makes it so much easier to keep it up. Because I'm doing it in concert with my best friend in the world. The one who will never forsake me. The one that will always be here with me. The one that sustains me. And that's been the case with all the blessings. Changing jobs. Going through some real tough times in those moments. And here I am. By the grace of God, here I am. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I was gifted it. It was a blessing, and it's one that I don't take for granted. And for as long as he blesses me with the ability to do this for a living, I'm going to do this to the best of my ability. And I'm also going to do it as respectfully as I can to try and help spread that message. And so there's no way I could start the Pop 6 without that message for you. And I know a lot of you probably didn't come here for that message. But if one of you heard something today that maybe makes you want to hear more, just tweet me at jmartzone. Email me, jmartclone at gmail.com. Find me. If I can't answer the question, and I certainly might not be able to, hopefully I can help you get started along that path. But I promise you, if I can do this, anybody can do this. That's what Dabo Swinney said after Clemson beat Alabama this year in the national championship game. He used it as a motivational speech for America, saying that he was blessed. And I'm saying the same thing. I went from 370 pounds to sitting behind this microphone tonight at 183 in less than two years. And it just leaves me speechless. And I can tell you how I did it. I can tell you what I eat. I can tell you how I exercise. But the truth of the matter is I was given the inspiration and the means and seemingly every step that I've taken with very limited research has been right. Almost as if it were out of my hands to begin with. And blessings have continued along in my life from the health changes to the job change to coming back here to 1045thezone.com to work with some of my best friends in the world to a new relationship with my parents as it relates to just them being included to the degree that they always should have been. Me finally seeing and hearing so much in them and recognizing how lucky I was to have gotten them as my mother and father and including them in my life in a way that I never have before. Everything right now. I just I'm, I just sit back and I'm so very excited to see what he uses me to do next. For now, I talk about pop culture and I talk about sports. My professional life is better than ever. And my personal life is, is on a plane that I could never have dreamed being what it has become over the last year. And in that process, meeting my best friend, I never saw that. I never saw that coming. But after 
the breaks of online and trying to find her and looking and trying to force every issue, I finally just decided to take my hands off the wheel and let him work on his clock and not mine. And without knowing what the future holds, the present is really good. And I think she may have walked into my life. And it all came about when I stopped trying to manipulate things or control things that I never had control of in the first place. And that is a really, actually a really relieving feeling to just be able to live your life from that perspective, knowing your purpose. And in the process, what comes your way oftentimes is so much better than what you could have ever dreamed up for yourself. And in my case, that is what I am seeing manifesting in front of me. And it's humbling to say the least. And again, this is the pop six. I'm blessed to have it. And I'm blessed to have you in my audience. Thank you for bearing with me for the last couple of minutes because that's something that, that I needed to say so that you would know who you're listening to. So let's talk about some pop culture. The Academy Award nominations came out. And I don't want to talk about them too much in detail. The Music City Film Critics Association gave Roma Best Picture. The Alfonso Coron Netflix original. And it was not my choice. Of course, you know, the nominations are both are based on majority, certainly. I went with the Star is Born, and I think a Star is Born is far better than Roma. I was not a big fan, to be honest, of Roma. I found it to be overrated and pretentious and just I just didn't care for it at all. I saw it once and realized there is no question I'm never gonna watch this again. And I thought A Star is Born was good, and now it's sort of being left in the dust. Looks like maybe Black Klansman for Best Picture, or I, I, th- I still think Roma may win it just because it feels like the kind of film that now wins Best Picture. There was a switch somewhere around the turn of the century where we were seeing Gladiator and Return of the King and all these movies that made a ton of money and people saw them. They were winning the awards. They were the ones getting the nominations and winning. And then all of a sudden, somewhere eight, nine years ago, that switched and it started to being the most artsy stuff that drew like $15 at the box office. A lot of it trying to make statements, social statements in particular, sometimes political statements. And as a result, I think, and many others probably would agree, the Oscar numbers are going down because no one's seen the films that are being nominated. Roma's been on Netflix for months. Have you seen it? If you haven't, I would tell you don't bother, but maybe you need to see it. Green Book, controversial, may now be the favorite to win. I, I don't I don't know. I still think A Star is Born is the best overall film I saw, the most enjoyable film that I saw, and it's one that many of you saw as well. But what I really want to talk about is the documentary category. I gave my top five on the air, by the way, on the big six months back, but I'm trying to even think off the top of my head. I don't have the list in front of me, but A Star is Born was certainly there. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, I just absolutely adore, and I tell anybody that asked me, it was one of the five best things I saw all year. And there were some other things certainly on that list as well, but I also mentioned that 
Spider-Man and Mission Impossible Fallout were the two best times I had at the theater all year. And I really had a good time. I had a blast watching Ready Player One. I had low expectations for it. Some people say it's not very good if you've read the book. I do have the book, have not read the book yet, but I'll be intrigued. But just I enjoyed the nostalgia of the entire thing. But the documentary category irks me, not because what was nominated wasn't good, but because I have a feeling that the Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, was left off not because it wasn't up to par from a quality standpoint, but honestly because the message is not what most critics want to reward. And the message was he was just a decent guy who loved Jesus. A lot of critics don't like the second part of the last sentence I just said. And increasingly, a lot of them don't like the first sentence. They want to tell you what decency is. And then they reward the indecent over and over and over again. Even though Fred Rogers defended social norms that weren't conservative Christian norms, it wasn't enough. I find it hard to believe that that wasn't one of the three best documentaries I saw last year. I find it hard to believe it wasn't the best one I saw last year. As a matter of fact, I don't have to find it hard to believe. I know it's false because it was the best documentary that I saw last year. And there were some good ones out there, but that was a snub, as they call it. And I do believe it's because that positive message just doesn't really get it done. We need this drama to try and push social change and all this stuff. Instead of just people being good to each other, that's not that's not enough. That did bother me. It still bothers me because I think that film was deserving. Everybody's going to have their own opinions, and they're going to say what was snubbed and what wasn't. And there have been big snubs through the years, and they've been things that have won that probably shouldn't have won. A King's Speech was really good. When's the last time you thought about it? Incidentally, it's one of the last Best Picture nominees that actually made money, or Best Picture winners, I should say, that actually made money. But that same year, The Social Network was out, was nominated, made a lot of money, should have won Best Picture. One of the best films of the century was The Social Network. It will be taught in drama classes, in especially in technical classes forever. The dialogue from Sorkin was outrageous. Beautifully directed. Everything about it was very good. And it had lasting impact. King's Speech probably didn't. Really good movie, but forgotten. I bet you didn't haven't thought about a King's Speech in or the King's Speech in years until I just mentioned that. Colin Firth's awesome, but they got that one wrong. Dark Knight was not even nominated for Best Picture. They got that one wrong. Heath Ledger should have won in a walk. They got that wrong. You can make that argument and go back in time and talk about Morgan Freeman in The Shawshank Redemption should have won instead of Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive. Both of those two films are absolutely tremendous, and Tommy Lee Jones was fantastic. I still think Red and The Shawshank Redemption may have stood out, but there are years where the snubs are not egregious, and then there are years where they are super egregious. If you want to talk about egregious, go back to the Golden Globes with Bohemian Rhapsody winning Best Picture. That's egregious. The story was out of sequence, but should that have anything to do with the quality of the movie? Not really. Was the movie good? It was pretty good. Rami Malek was incredible. He should be nominated. But there's no way that film was one of the seven best films of the year. I mean, not even close. But here we go. And after it won the Globe, I thought, maybe this will be one that doesn't get nominated. It's it's fine. It's fine. 
But the same reason it seems to me that Won't You Be My Neighbor didn't get nominated is the exact reason why you would nominate Bohemian Rhapsody if you're a critic. You like that Freddie Mercury story. I thought Rami Malek killed it. I thought they casted that film beautifully. The music, the soundtrack, Queen's awesome. We know this. But that movie was just there. I joked and said, I'm not even sure that was the best film about Queen that released in 2018. Obviously a joke. But it was a showpiece for Rami Malek. And a worthy showpiece. He was fantastic. He's great in everything. He's already got an Emmy for Mr. Robot. The Elliot Alderson character is as good as it gets on TV in the last 10 years or so. Right up there with the Matthew Reese and Kerry Russell roles on The Americans. Any of your favorites on Game of Thrones. Certainly Walter White and Jesse Pinkman or Don Draper or whoever. But BoJack Horseman, whoever you want to put up there. Elliot Alderson's on that list. Even though Sam Esmail took some weird steps in season two, I thought season three of Mr. Robot was brilliant. First season was very good. Has a tendency to go M. Night Shyamalan trying to be smarter than his audience from time to time, and that backfires. But Mr. Robot is a show that became a bit of a cultural touchstone in a network that was known for blue sky dramas. The blue sky went away from USA, and this was as dark as television could get. And it signaled a dramatic change for the USA network that continued on with The Center. The first season with Jessica Biel was very good. The the second season from this past year was one of the five best things I saw all year. Absolutely adored it. And Carrie Coon is outrageously good, maybe the best television actress in the world right now. Just finished up Fargo, just finished up The Leftovers, which is, if you have not watched The Leftovers, I could talk for hours about how brilliant that show was and how it nailed its ending when it had every right to screw it up. So they're... You know, there's there's a lot there. But in terms of Bohemian Rhapsody being best picture, I mean, come on. But that's why you don't watch the Golden Globes. Because that's what the Hollywood Foreign Press Association does. They reward the big stars and the big names. And I'm not going to use the term, but they're star bleepers. That's what they're known to be. So I don't take them seriously, so I don't watch them. I didn't watch them this year. People say, oh, are you going to uh, live tweet the Globes? No. Just don't care. Because it doesn't, I mean, no award show should affect your life. I don't even think we need award shows in general. But, I mean, just tell us who won. We don't need the ceremony for the self-congratulatory stuff and people patting each other on the back. But whatever, if you want to get dressed up one night a year and make a bunch of speeches that either are too long or are cut off by a band before they actually get going or try to make some kind of political or social statement or go after the president of the United States, whatever, whatever it is that you feel like you need to do, go right ahead. But I don't see these ratings turning around, especially when you look at Best Picture. Now, the other one that's out there, of course, is Black Panther, which is nominated for Best Picture. I don't know what to say about Black Panther, except it was very good. It was a Marvel movie. It was like almost every other Marvel movie, except that it had Killmonger in it, and he was fantastic. Michael B. Jordan's awesome. Chadwick Boseman is also really good. And the supporting cast was very... I mean, it's a great Marvel movie. But the best Marvel movie remains Captain America, the Winter Soldier, and the second best Marvel movie may still be the first Guardians of the Galaxy. And then maybe we're talking about Black Panther. But Black Panther is a Best Picture nominee, and I think what it means in terms of what Ryan Coogler was able to do, what a success it was, and maybe what it proved about the future is important and is worthy of praise. The film itself was just a really good Marvel movie. So I'm curious to see 
how it does or whether or not the academy and the voters feel like the nomination was enough. Again, right now, Green Book and Black Klansman are the two that seem to be rising up the charts. I still think A Star is Born was the most affecting thing that I saw all year, but there were some great performances in a lot of different things this year. You know, this is my podcast, so I'm going to tell you what I think. Time will tell. We'll see what actually wins when we get down to it. Now let's talk about a film that came out about a week ago. I've written about the first two in detail. I wrote about Unbreakable and I wrote about Split. Unbreakable came out in 2000, made about a third of the money that Shyamalan's first film, The Sixth Sense, did 12 months prior. was largely hailed as a flop, especially from a financial standpoint. Originally and always perceived it was going to be a trilogy. That's what Shyamalan wanted. It's what Bruce Willis said in an interview back in 2000. It took 16 years to put out the second film, Split, starring James McAvoy. And you didn't even know because the twist in Split was that it was the second part of Unbreakable. And you didn't even realize that until you got to the very end. And it was probably the second best twist he's ever pulled, meaning Shyamalan, because it took us back to a film that I really liked in Unbreakable that still to me holds up. Split was very good. McAvoy's performance was just outstanding. And so a couple years later, here we get Glass to open 2019 about Elijah Price, about the Mr. Glass character that Samuel L. Jackson played in Unbreakable, the villain character, the one that sort of proved to be the catalyst for the origin story of David Dunn, the overseer, as it's revealed to be the name that they gave him in the third film. Now, Shyamalan, it's a superhero movie that is a deconstruction of the superhero genre. That was how it was conceived. That's what Shyamalan wanted. Like, you can see all the touchstones in it, and Mr. Glass is obsessed with comics because as a kid with brittle bone disease, unable to really do much of anything, he spent a lot of time in hospital rooms reading comics that his mother had given him, and he sort of became consumed by the belief that they were part of real history that had been told by people that lived it and that these were like remnants of earlier civilizations or remnants of things that had happened many years before, but that there was truth in those pages. And so David Dunn became the source, the first, like, I guess, beacon that he was right. And he spent years and years and years trying to find it and cause various tragedies to happen through terrorist acts in order to find somebody that could survive one of them and prove to maybe be a superhero. And he found that in the Bruce Willis, David Dunn character. And that was basically unbreakable in a nutshell. And then in Split, you've got a guy with DID, dissociative identity disorder, and James McAvoy, Kevin Crum, Kevin Wendell Crum, who created 24 other identities, or they were created in him to be defense mechanisms against an abusive mother. And McAvoy plays these things so well that it's impossible to laugh at even the more ridiculous of the characters because it's almost just, it's so unsettling. And Unbreakable, I mentioned this in my longer review at 1045zone.com slash big6blog. Unbreakable features one of those few scenes that still makes me very uneasy and almost frightened every time I see it. It's not ever going to take number one. Number one is still the scene in Zodiac where the Zodiac killer murders the couple in the middle of the picnic on the mountain in the middle of the afternoon. And the reason why that scene is what it is to me is because of how visceral it is, how violent it is, 
and how this guy just showed up in the middle of the daytime in a serene park, walked up, didn't come from behind, just walked up to these people and stabbed them mercilessly over and over again without saying a word to them while they asked him questions beforehand. It's frightening because it takes a place that should feel safe and makes it the very opposite. And it's something that feels like it actually could have happened, but this killer could have been seen by any number of people, didn't care, just showed up and murdered these people he didn't even know for no reason at all. And that just shook me to the core, and it still does. I generally don't like that scene. I like that movie, but I don't like that scene because of just a little bit uncomfortable watching it. And Unbreakable has one of those scenes as well where the criminal shows up at that family's house and the father opens the door and the criminal slash janitor just says, I like your house, pulls his way into the house, murders the parents, and takes and basically just takes the kids hostage, ties them up, and starts living his life inside that house. Again, something that doesn't feel like it couldn't happen. Something that makes you not want to open your own door when somebody knocks on it because some strong dude could just pull open the door and kill you. Very uncomfortable sequence in Unbreakable. So there are a lot of moments in it. These films are dark. Unbreakable was darker than he thought it was going to be. Split was in, was very dark. Rewatching it, it wasn't maybe as dark as I thought it was the, the first time around. Maybe because I already knew the twist, knew where it was headed, so it's hard to be quite the same. And then Glass was dark as well, and Glass came came out here just a couple of weeks ago, and it completes this trilogy. And I say completes because even though M. Night Shyamalan has said recently, look, if there's more that I want to write about this universe, then there could be other movies. I don't think there can be watching the way that this film ended. And there have been some crazy responses to Glass. And I don't know why. Now, spoilers coming here. I'm not just going to give you a bit. It's been out for a week and a half. If I'm doing reviews before films come out, and that will happen, there are things I screen weeks in advance, sometimes months in advance, and if I'm able to talk about them, if the embargoes are lifted, I'm not going to spoil things. That's not what I do. I want you to be able to see this and enjoy it the same way I did or in some cases enjoy it when I didn't. But here, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you if you haven't seen it, skip ahead in the podcast so that you don't get it spoiled if you wanted to see it and cared about the first two films. The twist at the end of Glass, I actually kind of liked now, what I thought when I was watching the movie was, and the Sarah Paulson character irritated me. Her dialogue irritated me. And maybe just because I knew these people did have superpowers, it irritated me that she kept trying to tell them that they didn't and explain away things. But I immediately thought to myself within a couple of minutes, okay, because when you're watching an M. Night Shyamalan film, the first thing you do is try to figure out what the twist is going to be. And there are times I've gotten it right, times I've gotten it wrong when twists are there i didn't get the sixth sense before it happened i did get the usual suspects that was probably the biggest one and i've gotten some others through the years and i've blown some others during years as well but here in this case i felt like what we were seeing was the sarah paulson psychologist character actually a superhero herself who knew it and simply wanted to be the only one and so she just created this ruse in terms of just being around her job in order to convince 
all the others that they were not so she could be more powerful. And the movie is all about the color schemes. That's kind of been an underlying theme for all three films. I wrote about that extensively. Mr. Glass, the Elijah Price, every time you see him, it's purple. And it starts with the purple that he opens up the first comic book gift from his mother in. He's got purple under his jacket. There's purple-tinged light and purple wallpaper and all that. And then in the first film, in Unbreakable, it wasn't necessarily green, but it became green for the Bruce Willis character. And it was yellow pretty much from the get-go for the Kevin Crumb character. The lights in the lair underneath the zoo were tinged in yellow. It just became more of a yellowish color. And then yellow continued all the way through the end of Glass. But in the room where Price and Crumb and Dunn were all there and she was talking to them all, the entire room was just this very pink color. And so I thought, okay, well, her color is pink. She's going to be a superhero at the end of this. And I thought I'd be right. And But I also knew in my head, if I'm not right, there's still something wrong here. and There's no way she is who she appears to be. And I was right about that. She wasn't necessarily a superhero. And the twist turns out to be that not only do superheroes exist, but there's also a group of humans that are basically like an Illuminati who have been controlling the world for thousands of years and don't want to give that control up. So they want to make sure that no one in the population recognizes their own potential in a universe where superpowers do exist. And to do that, they tried to break these three people, which did not work, and then killed them, which also did not work because Mr. Glass, being the mastermind that he was, made sure all those cameras were set up, planned out everything, and made sure that there was video evidence that could then be released off of a server to the world to basically say, yes, superheroes exist. And that's a story that's been told so many times in comics. It was the point of Marvel's Civil War, where there was the Superhero Registration Act, and you had Iron Man on one side giving in, and Captain America not wanting to give in. And One of the big tentpole events that happened within that limited series was that Spider-Man was unmasked, And there were various things. That's always been there. Superheroes, it's always sort of a give and take. Man of Steel. Is Superman good or is he not good? Are superheroes vigilantes that need to be controlled? Should there be regulation? Should there be registration? All of that stuff. So this was not new. And it's not sort of outlandish that there would be a group that's trying to keep this information concealed. I thought the twist was pretty good that she was part of this Illuminati. We saw her in two different rooms where everybody just gets quiet when the door closes and we realize, okay, everybody is part of this cabal. And then Glass outsmarting them and having that video evidence that they basically set up themselves with Paulson putting in 100 cameras and him basically making sure that he walked through as many of them as possible and that every bit of that confrontation outside the facility was filmed. That made fine logical sense to me. There were some critics that said, this is M. Night Shyamalan. This is him doing an allegory to his own career and how he feels about the critics, that he's Mr. Glass, that he outsmarted all of them, that they thought that they were superhuman because of their reviews and all these. I'm not going there. I'm not saying that's not what he was, that that's what he, I don't know. That's not what I thought he was doing. What he did to me pretty much worked. I didn't think this movie was great by any means. I thought it was too long, first of all. Could have dealt with about 20 minutes shorter. And one thing you'll come to know about me 
when I talk about pop, about pop culture is I've decided that less is generally more. I used to love the fact that some movies were going to be about three hours now. Usually that's a bad idea. So this movie was too long, and I think it tried to accomplish too much. But generally I liked the way that this story concluded. I liked the tie-in that Kevin Wendell Crump's father was on the train with David Dunn, that we didn't know that, and that Mr. Glass created the Horde. Kevin Crumb's like alter egos all put together, and the Beast created them through the tragedy that resulted after his dad left and his mom became abusive. And that, you know, Mr. Glass basically created superheroes. I I liked what they did there. I liked the tie-in. I also liked that each one of the three of them had representatives that remained behind. Elijah had his mother, and Casey Cook was there for Kevin Crumb, and then David Dunn's son. I like that, and I like that they all sat there in that train station at the end, which, although I don't know, I assume is the same train station where David Dunn was in the first film when he finally accepted that the powers were real, and he started wanting to feel the visions off the people to try and intervene. But all of them kind of sitting there as allies in the end all for the same purpose that everyone needs to realize their own potential. I liked it. The movie's not an A+. Plus, it's not a B+. Plus. It's a C, C-. minus. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not going to change the world, but very few things are going to change the world or make you feel something that special about them. I walked out and thought, hey, that was worth my time. And there are critics and, and friends of mine that were just beside themselves irate after watching Glass because M. Night Shyamalan just had to be the smartest guy in the room, and he outthought himself, and these twists were bad, and whatever. I don't know. I need to talk to him and find out why they were so upset about this, because I didn't see anything to be that upset about. Maybe the twist didn't work for you, and generally if the twist doesn't work in a Shyamalan film, you're going to hate that film. But this was fine. It made logical sense. The, You know, you see the end, there's an open ending, but I don't want to see more films because you've killed off the three characters, so now it would just be bringing in new superhero characters into this universe. This was an origin story that spanned three films that basically ended up being the awakening of the public in this universe to the fact that superhumans existed. And then you can just kind of, in your own brain, wonder how many people then tried out, figured out what they had, or were already thought they were weird, or whatever it might be, and then all of a sudden realize, no, we've, we're special, maybe. We're unique. We have something to offer. So I actually thought the message itself ended up being pretty good also. So Glass is not bad, folks. It's not great, but I think it's better than the critics have got it. Some, I don't know where Rotten Tomatoes has got it now with a critic consensus somewhere around 40, maybe less. I think it's better than that. It's an average film. But the twists did not bother me. I was not let down by the twists. And McAvoy's performance is just awesome. Samuel L.'s performance is good. If you want to knock it for anything else, it's that Bruce Willis really wasn't a part of it. He was sort of an afterthought. But it was really, he was also the third most compelling character. When you go back and look at the entire universe, the first story was was about him, but it was kind of more about Glass to begin with. And then the second film certainly was about the villain. And this film, I felt like Crumb and Price were both more interesting as characters and had more to offer than David Dunn at that point. David Dunn just needed to be there doing David Dunn things. 
and we needed to see how he worked with his son and, and all of those things. And we got enough of that. So it took 19 years to get these three films done. One in 2000, then 16 years, and then a couple more. I'm not going to sit here and applaud into the microphone, but I thought these were fine. I liked all three of them. I'm glad that they exist. And I just don't know why so many critics are sort of up in arms about it. That that I, I failed to understand that. So if you saw the first two films and you have not seen Glass yet and you just came back to this podcast and skipped over the last several minutes, go see Glass. It's worth your time. It's not going to make you feel great about life or anything like that, but it's a it's a worthy escape. Ultimately, that's what pop culture is or should be. True Detective Season 2 was not good. So bad, in fact, that we went from a Season 1 that was a super cultural, significant, limited series for HBO created by Nick Pizzolatto with Woody Harrelson and a great performance as Russ Cole from Matthew McConaughey. We went from that to a four-lead Season 2 that was so bad that HBO and, and a lot of people just thought, okay, well, let's just scrap this. After a great one season, the second season was bad enough that they almost didn't come back for a third. Thank goodness they came back for a third. Because so far, and I've got the next few episodes, but I haven't watched them yet because I'm not going to watch a couple of episodes in a row and then write. I'm going to watch, I'll probably watch the fourth one maybe tonight and write on it so it'll be ready for you to read just as soon as the credits roll on Sunday. But I haven't gotten to see any more than you have at this point. Mahershala Ali is tremendous. We already knew this. We knew it from film. We knew it from House of Cards. We knew it from everything he's been associated with. He is incredibly talented. He is A-list to the max. He's on his way to the moon if he's not already there. In True Detective, playing the same character, Wayne Hayes, a detective from 1980, then in 1990, and then in 2015 with Alzheimer's and maybe some dementia, this is as good as it gets. Because there's nuance to every one of these performances. The 1980 guy, the hunter that you know, had been in the war and was a tracker by trade. And then in 1990, we see a man who's bitter, who has felt some racism in Arkansas in the South that's held him back. And a case that got under his skin to the extent that it basically destroyed his life. And then in 2015, that case being drudged back up as part of a television special or an interview that he's doing. And now we're seeing this man who's having to talk into a voice recorder just to have things that he can remember and go back to because his mind has betrayed him. True Detective ultimately is not about these cases. Now, we're going to find out what happened to Will and Julie Purcell. We're going to find out in the end how that went down just as we found out what the Yellow King was and what happened in the first season and whatever went down in the second season. But ultimately, your like or dislike of True Detective needs to associate itself with the detectives because the point of the show is not really a whodunit. That's sort of there, but it's sort of there like a Trojan horse. And this is something I've discussed many times. Many dramas are Trojan horses that have the same underlying point. And some are trying to make statements, but you can put a lot of different shows that seem like they're vastly different into the same category. 
was Breaking Bad really about meth? No. Was the walk is the Walking Dead about zombies? No. It never was. It's about people. And generally, if you look at almost every show, it's about people and how they treat one another and how they react in certain situations. And so the 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 lure might be different, the setting might be different, your location or the subject, but the underlying theme ends up being almost exactly the same thing. Maybe it's a political struggle, Game of Thrones, the West Wing. Maybe it's something societal, like The Wire. But was The Wire about drugs? No, it was about corruption in all facets. And it was also about the idea that things never change. No matter what happens, characters might change, but the same problems are still here. And you can look at all your favorite shows and just look at what it is, whether it's a show about football, whether it's a show about monsters, whether it's a show about drugs, whether it's a show that takes place in the Oval Office, whatever it is, look past that and say, what is this show really about? And what you're going to find in almost every case is that it's about people how they treat one another, how they relate to one another, how they backstab one another. What's the difference between the West Wing and Battlestar Galactica? They were all about people. Now, there were political statements being made in the West Wing, and there were environmental statements being made in Battlestar Galactica. But those shows are not as different as you might think. And, you know, you can look at, certainly the procedurals are all the same. You just change the quirk whether it's The Mentalist or whatever you want to say. CSI, CSI was about the scientific evidence. The Mentalist, it was about this guy's gift. There's always something. In White Collar, it was Neil Caffrey being a former criminal that was just so good at that that he was able to see it in others and became invaluable to the FBI. They're all the same. It just depends. Fringe was CSI mixed with Lost, sort of. And Lost is still my favorite drama of all time. Before we're said and done, I'm sure I'll do a whole episode on it. I've done it on Outkick the Culture. To me, it's a perfect television show that had the perfect ending, and I will fight anyone that says otherwise. Now, sitcoms are different. Comedies in general are different. They're not generally Trojan horses, but you can also put them into categories. But what is True Detective really about? Is it about the crime? Eh. Crime's what keeps you there. It's what keeps you asking questions. But the show is about detectives where cases affect their lives in a way that they are never the same again. How they devolve. How they lose themselves. How they become obsessed. How it affects them and changes them permanently. And we saw that with the characters in both the first two seasons. And now we're seeing it maybe more clearly exhibited and illustrated through this Wayne Hayes character and even also Stephen Dorff in the Roland West character and how Hayes in particular went from one guy who was as smart as they come to a guy that's on the corner, not sure how he got on that stretch of asphalt in the first place, totally lost. It's the prime example of just that. 
So who killed the Purcells? I don't know. The Tom Purcell character, Scoot McNary, who, if you haven't watched Halt and Catch Fire, you should stop this podcast and do that right now. Scoot McNary is awesome. He's very good in this. It looks like the Tom Purcell character is out of the woods, which makes me think there's more to come there. But he's found Jesus, and he's asking Roland West to pray with him. And he's been sober for five years, and his wife Lucy is dead. So maybe it has nothing to do with them. There's the political angle with the local district attorney and who becomes the attorney general, I guess, of the state of Arkansas. There's a lot going on here. But the best way to watch True Detective is to pay attention to the characters of the two detectives because it's truly about them. Your like or dislike of the show should hinge on whether or not you like watching their story play out. Not necessarily that the case is going to tie up in a way that's going to blow your mind. Because generally you're going to get let down there. More often than not. A lot of people were let down by the end of the first season. Second season, I'm not sure how many people were watching it by the end. And now you get here. I, I don't know who, what we're going to find out. Maybe it's going to turn out to be good. But did you like the ride? True Detective is about the ride. And it's about Nick Pizzolatto dropping a lot of references and a lot of things that turn out to just be false MacGuffins or whatever designed to just kind of keep you on your toes and sometimes just to mess with you. He's got a little M. Night Shyamalan in him, no question about it. But the center on HBO, or pardon me, on USA, and now I guess on Netflix as well, the crime, the way it tied up in the first season, some people found that to be bland. I thought it was fine because it made sense. But that was about the characters. That was about Bill Pullman, and it was about Jessica Biel mainly and watching how they operated with one another and separately. And season two was similar, although I really liked the way that that, season, that uh, tied up. So your enjoyment should begin at the beginning. Try to retrain yourself to watch a show where the ride is okay, and it's all right to take that ride even if the ending isn't what you want it to be. Measure your expectations now. I don't know how this story is going to end in five episodes. I don't know where they're going. I don't know who's who is the killer. I don't know if it's going to be some giant surprise or if it's going to be something that makes a lot of sense and is going to let people down. But measure your expectations now. Do not hinge your like or dislike of True Detective on what happens in the end. Because if you are, you might as well stop watching now. If you're not enjoying what you're watching now, I don't know what to tell you. It's good. I'm enjoying it a lot. I made the mistake of deep diving into that Albert Einstein quote that Amelia said in the vision in 2015 in the last episode about past, present, and future being an illusion, but a persistent one. I went into it, and man, I'm reading about the theory of relativity and then four-dimensional time and mourning and space and linear and absolutes and all this. And I was able just to pull out from that that you can't place a line where the past stops and the future begins because time is continuous. It's also something you can't touch. You can't go to a specific spot in time because time is something that is continuing. It's cyclical. It continues to move on. You can't escape it either. You can't define it. You can't escape it. It can define you. And that's what we're seeing with this Wayne Hayes character, past, present, future, 1980, 1990, 2015. 
seeing three parts of this guy's life where he's still consumed with the very same large theme in terms of the Purcell case. In 1980, he meets his future wife. In 1990, they're having problems, largely due to the fact that she's writing a book and her character sort of based on a writer from Arkansas that I wrote about in the first episode, a real true crime writer, as well as Truman Capote. Well, we're seeing him in 80, and then we're seeing him in 90 having marital trouble because of this book and because this case has taken a toll. And then we're seeing him in 2015 where he's just decimated. His mind is just a total shambles. Time has gotten the better of him. You can't, can't call it a name because you're never going to see its face. There's no real answer to time other than the only thing that really exists is the now, but you can't define it. See, I mean, I could talk about this forever. There are so many different articles written on Einstein's quote through the years. All of them, I just got to admit, are probably over my head. But I like to go through it and look at these poems and write them down and try to find themes in them. And that's why I hope you're reading me at the Big Six blog at 1045thezone.com slash Big Six blog. This has been sort of a different episode than maybe you'll expect. I'm not going to go into a lot of the stuff that I went into in the first 10 minutes of this show, but I had to introduce it. I had to introduce it as authentically as I could. And to do that, you have to go down some roads and some paths. And I'm never going to be someone that's going to shy away from those roads. And there will be some that won't love that, and there'll be some that will appreciate that. But what you see is what you get. Who you see is who you get, who you hear. And so I appreciate you giving me your ears. Tell me what you think, always, at jmartzone on Twitter. You can find me there. What do you think of True Detective? Do you like the idea that I'm, po- that I'm positing that as long as you're enjoying the story of the detectives, you're getting out of this what I think you're supposed to be getting out of this? And also that this season's worth watching, and it's refreshing because season two was so questionably terrible. I should say unquestionably. Did you hate Glass? If you saw it, let me know. What do you think about what I had to say about the Academy Awards? Did you like Roma? Please tell me. All of those things. Anything else? What do you want me to cover? What do you want me to talk about? Next week, I think I'm going to talk about Friends. I wrote a series of articles for OutKick. First thing I ever did for Clay was write the top 10 dramas, top 10 comedies for me. Long form pieces on all of them. Well, I'm kind of re-watching Friends off and on with my girlfriend now and... So I have a lot to say about friends and how some things that are trendy are trendy because they're good. And it's all right to admit that. And at the time, there was sort of this backlash about friends. It kind of became sort of a joke at times. And then you look back on it, you're like, no, that show holds up, and it's one of the best comedies of all time. So we'll talk about that next week. We will go in-depth episode by episode as True Detective continues. So we'll talk about episode four. This is more of an overview, overview episode here. Other things that I see we'll talk about. Good good places, season wrapping up. Best show on TV to me. The one I get the most enjoyment out of. So we will discuss that. Other things that are in my life uh, that are going on pop culture-wise. Next week might be a tough week. It's possible. We wait one week because I'm going to be in Atlanta at the Super Bowl. And it's just going to be tough from a logistical standpoint with everything that's going on around the station. But we'll see what we can pull off. Remember Sunday, Squared Circle Radio will be live. Royal Rumble is Sunday. One of the two, three biggest events of the year for WWE, an enormous six-hour card. So we'll be talking about that as always. Big Six Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Central Time on 104.5 The Zone, 104.5thezone.com, or you can subscribe just like you're subscribing to this show, The Big Six with Jason Martin, The Pop Six with Jason Martin, 
Find them, subscribe to them, and please leave me a rating or a, re- or a review. Those things really do matter. They do help if you're enjoying what you're hearing. Uh, certainly let people know. And let me know, what do you want me to cover? What do you want me to leave out? Um, what needs to be talked about, past or present? We'll do some rewatches here. We'll go back in time. We'll talk about the future. We'll talk about what's happening now. Einstein wouldn't like this conversation right now because he doesn't believe in the future or the past. But we're going to have some fun here. We're going to talk a lot of pop culture, and we're going to do it in a variety of ways, a variety of genres. And hopefully I'll find ways to include you. Hopefully we're going to have some guests on this show as well. So that's it. Pop 6 Episode 1 in the books. Thank you to all of those who asked for this show to be brought back. Thank you to The Zone and to Cumulus for wanting me to come back and do something like this in addition to the Big 6 blog. Continued blessings to all of you. As I say on the Big Six every night, I am blessed beyond measure. And I pray that all of you recognize that you are as well. Hope you all have a wonderful weekend. I guess depending on when you hear this, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. I will be back Monday night on the Big Six on 104.5 The Zone. And then I'll be headed to Atlanta as part of our crew down there on Radio Row as we prepare for the Super Bowl. Rams and Sigh, Patriots. All right. Hope you dug it. We'll see you next week. Pop six. I'm Jason Martin on Twitter at jmartzone. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. God bless.